Okay, so so far in our study, as we've been tracking the church, <coughs> the church kind of had this explosive beginning. And uh, Jesus told the, the disciples that they were going to be his witnesses throughout all of the kingdom and tell them they have to wait for the Holy Spirit. So they wait, and 50 days after his crucifixion on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish festival of Shavuot, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. And uh, they come out preaching. And because there were so many people gathered into Jerusalem for this festival, there's a lot of people for Peter to preach to. And 3,000 people get saved that day. And this kind of starts a rhythm. Not long after, Peter's going to temple and he sees a beggar and he heals him. He, he says, what, what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And this guy gets healed which causes quite a stir. And, Jesus, and Peter finds himself preaching in front of another crowd, and 5,000 people get saved this time. So he's kind of on a roll. And then it kind of gets into the next part of the story. It says that people were coming from surrounding villages and bringing their sick into Jerusalem, and they were just lining the streets, hoping that Peter's shadow would even fall on them. They were so convinced that Peter was just radiating the presence of God, that they were just trying to get into his shadow to get healed. And then uh, this creates enough of a stir that the kind of power structure of the day uh, retaliates. They beat Peter, tell him not to preach anymore. He continues to preach. Another guy named Stephen preaches, makes some people angry, and they try Stephen and stone him and kill him. And so the church scatters. They're uh, afraid of the persecution. They run. And and what this does is it takes the gospel to new places. They go up into Samaria. And the apostles are a little bit shocked that the Samaritans get saved. So they go up to kind of validate and make sure this is real. Um, And Samaritans did have a Jewish heritage. They actually used the Torah as their main teaching. So there was definitely more... um, credibility in a Samaritan getting saved than it would be, say, just a complete Roman Gentile. But they still didn't necessarily trust us. They went up, they tested, they saw that the Holy Spirit fell on them the same way they had on the Jerusalem church. This was validation. So they begin to preach in Samaria. And then the persecution goes uh, kind of mobile. Paul gets orders from the Sanhedrin to chase the church and persecute them on the road. And so the church is fleeing from Paul, and Jesus kind of reveals himself to Paul, and the church kind of takes him in and loves him, and he converts and becomes a Christian. Kind of the enemy, public enemy number one, becomes on their team. And so the persecution just stops, and it just kind of dies. And Peter, at this point, um, was kind of preaching to the areas around Judea. He's in Joppa, which is on the, the coast of the Mediterranean, and <clears throat> he gets uh, has this vision, we talked about this last week, of this sheet coming down covered in animals that the Jews were not allowed to eat. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And he, uh, uh, he says, well, I can't, Lord, because I'm kosher. Um, nothing common or unclean uh, ever crosses my lips. And the, he heard the voice say that which the Lord has cleansed, call not common or unclean. And, uh, and this happens three times. And so In this confusion, uh, Peter wakes up and he has no idea what the vision means. Um, But he hears the Holy Spirit say, there's some guys waiting for you downstairs. Um, You need to go with them. And so he walks downstairs and sure enough, they're standing there. 
so he goes with them, no questions asked, and they take him all the way to Caesarea, which is up the coast, um, this kind of big port city where um, it was kind of a major tax hub so they could tax all the imports coming in from the Mediterranean. And they take him to a centurion who would have been a well-connected um, kind of Roman of Romans. He's, he's, he's the epitome of a Gentile. He is a Roman, not, and not just a Roman, like the Roman, the quintessential Roman. And Peter walks in and the guy just says, I was praying and saw an angel and the angel told me to send for you. What do you got? And Peter was blown away and just said, I had a vision and he kind of tells him about the vision and says, and now I know God wasn't talking about animals and diets. He was talking about people. And so Peter preaches to them, tells them about Jesus and the Holy Spirit immediately falls on them, which brings us to our passage for tonight. So Peter hangs out with Cornelius a little bit. Um, and then heads home. And when he gets there, he finds out the news of what had happened beat him. And this, these aren't even the days of Facebook. This is like slow media. And still, when you do something different, word travels. It absolutely moves around. And so they actually find out um, before he even gets there what had happened. And he walks in the door. And this is what, he, this is what happens. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, and if, if you're a map person, they use up and down different in the scripture, which always drives me crazy because Caesarea is north of Judea. And so they say they came up to, they speak in elevations. Jerusalem is more elevated than Caesarea. So you come up the mountain to Jerusalem. And so if you like to visualize what's happening, they're going south, only up. There we go. Um, and when Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is like when you're a teenager and you've stayed out past curfew and you walk in the door and both your parents are sitting in the living room. Like, and you're like, oh, you already know. Yeah, so that's kind of what happened here. Peter walks in the door and they're like, you, you talk to a Gentile. And he's like, so he, it's, it's, it's a scandal, really, but here's the thing. This also shows us that I've been saying this for the whole, kind of the whole time, and it's really hard for us to picture because we're used to big testimonies. We're used to people saying, I used to be on drugs, and then Jesus got a hold of my life, and that, you know, like, that's, we're used to that, and that's a cool thing. So we just, we just celebrate anybody coming to Jesus at any time. But I've kind of been stressing how Jewish this thing was at the time. And this becomes really one of the themes of the entire New Testament. Definitely the book of Acts. If, if you kind of miss the scope of how big of a deal this was for a Gentile to get saved. Because you've got to think, Peter is on trial again here. Really. And the last time he was on trial, it was from the Sanhedrin. And it was, he was, it was from kind of an outsider like accusing him. And now this is coming from the inside. This is inside the fold. This is kind of brother to brother. And it's this accusation, like, how could you do this? Um, and, if you, and if you don't understand how big of a deal it was to be a Jew and reach out to a Gentile, you miss some of the real tension here. Like, this is a, a major moment. And it's, and it's going to inform a big part of the book because there's actually going to be Jews that I think weren't happy with the decision here today that follow Paul around. When Paul starts preaching to the Gentiles, they become known as Judaizers. And whenever Paul would leave a city, they would come in behind them 
and basically try to convert all these new converted Christians over to Judaism, which back then meant the men had to get circumcised. And so this was a hard sell. Um, and so they, uh, but they, they didn't feel like you could be a Christian if you weren't also Jewish. And so they were like, you kind of have to join the old covenant to understand what it means to be advanced to the new covenant. And so they were trying to bring, bring people kind of through the Jewish faith into Christianity. And, uh, and a lot of Paul's writing is, is underscored by this tension. You, we really have to understand that even within the church, this was not... Um, this was a major controversy, a major controversy that stayed there for years. So, um, but it also shows us that conflict has always been part of the church. We've always wrestled over our theology. Like when, when you have a theological disagreement with somebody, that is normal. That's as old as the church. And it's, we're, that's how we're supposed to sort things out is by saying, this is what I think. It's like, you know, I kind of see it like this. And, and we we deal with that. We talk about that and we sit in that tension and love each other anyway. And we allow our, our faith and understanding to grow. So Peter has to give his, uh, his defense. He basically tells him the story, retells it. And Luke this time does give us some details that he didn't put in the first one. Most likely stuff Peter kind of pulled out as he spent time with Cornelius afterwards. But there's a couple things in this Retelling that, that Pete, Luke didn't give us in the original story that's, that are kind of important. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull out some of the kind of big moments that, that are important. It's going to feel a little chunky because we're just going to kind of jump from point to point and then we'll pull it all together at the end. So here's the first one in Peter's defense. Um, as he retells his story, <coughs> Cornelius tells about how the angel came and saw him. And there's something interesting in this. He says, and he told us how he had seen an angel. So this is Peter talking to the, the rest of the church. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you uh, words by which you and your entire household will be saved. And this is kind of important because this indicates that Cornelius was not saved before. And we're, we're pretty familiar with that, but he was a good guy. And a lot of times people get kind of confused because Cornelius prayed. He gave alms. It said he had a great reputation with the Jews. Like, this is not a bad person. This is a, he was a good person. And we have a tendency to think when we see somebody, you know, and they're, they're praying and they're, uh, you know, they're, they give and they're a you know, genuinely good person, that that is ultimately what salvation is. And this angel in the midst of Cornelius's goodness comes in and says, you need Peter and he'll tell you how to get saved. Like even in your goodness, he will tell you. And the second Peter says that God had revealed that those who believe in Jesus will be saved. Um, the Holy Spirit fell immediately on him. Like once he got kind of that, we talked about this last week, once he kind of got to the how it happens part of the sermon, it just happened immediately. Cornelius put his faith in, uh, in Jesus kind of as he was hearing the words and the Holy Spirit fell on him, which is beautiful. Um, so we do got to catch that Cornelius, as good of a guy as he was, um, was not saved. And this next part I want to highlight um, is maybe one of the most important parts of the scripture, and I'll tell you why. Um, there are two verses in the Bible that kind of have defined me as a teacher and a preacher really over my entire life. And one of them comes from this passage, um, which I absolutely love. One comes from Jeremiah when it says, Then I said, I will no, 
I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary from holding it back and I could not. That is, that is what it feels like when I try not to talk. I swear it does. When I know that my time should be up and I don't want to say, and I know where I got to go, it's like a fire shut up in my bones if I don't let the rest out. And the next one is, uh, is in this passage. It says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us in the beginning. And what this passage basically tells us is no longer how long I talk, I feel like I've just begun to speak. When I just began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. So no matter how long a preacher preaches, he thinks he's just begun to speak. Now, seriously though, um, this is uh, this is our next one. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I definitely want us to catch this one. If we look at what happened to Peter, he has a crazy, inexplicable dream that's, that's from God because he wakes up fully remembering it and wondering what had happened. This is a dream from God. Then the Holy Spirit tells him, there's guys downstairs waiting for you. And he walks downstairs and there they are. That would have been kind of a big deal as well. Then he goes to Cornelius and Cornelius says, I saw an angel and he told me to send for you. And so Peter's like, wow, that's crazy. And so he preaches this message to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius in some way that is tangible and recognizable and connected to Pentecost. And still in the midst of all this stuff that you would say, this, is, this has got to be from God. I mean, look at all of the crazy things that are happening. Um, still, Peter, um, to feel confident, has to connect it back to the Word of God. He says, then I remembered the words of Jesus when he said, this kind of thing is going to happen. And it, it kind of shows us the value of the scripture, like that the Holy Spirit is going to confirm the things he does in big and miraculous ways. And that's awesome. But we also need that to ultimately match the scripture. It's not like the scripture is going to tell us every Latin. The scripture does, never tells you, hey, you want to take this way to work instead of that way to work. Like, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Something, the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into crazy things. But the scripture is always where we go to make sure that this stuff that's happening is congruent with the story. It, it matches what God has been doing. And the, obviously people have taken the scripture and they pull it out of context and done terrible things with it for centuries. And that's part of the, the tension. But we still have to make sure anything we say or do or believe or pursue matches the, that, that it's from the scripture. Ultimately, it's from the scripture. So in the midst of these crazy miracles that you would think should be enough for Peter to know this is God. What else could it be? Still, his, he has to attach it to some scripture. I have to have some scripture so that I know this is real. Even though, what else could it be? We still make sure that we anchor ourselves and get our teaching directly from the scripture. And at the end of this little, I guess, defense uh, Peter tells his story and everybody kind of says, okay, like nobody fights anymore. They say, I guess repentance has gone to the Gentiles. This is the way it says it. Then God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance of life. And at this point, that seems to be the end of it. And our story turns. It's a kind of a new pericope, probably should have been a new chapter. But, um, but the, the story kind of shifts. What did I just put up? Okay, well, we missed that one. Um, 
And it starts talking about some of these people who were scattered um, in the persecution. And so this is the Mediterranean. I'm going to use a pointer again. Um, so they're down here at Jerusalem when, uh, when they have their little council. And then it says that people who were scattered um, in the persecution of Peter went north all the way up to Phoenicia. Phoenicia is this kind of, it's a region. It's not a city. It's this region kind of right on the coast right here. So people are, are kind of going up this coast. But it says they had only talked to the Jews. So they're going kind of these synagogues that had been established through this region. They're talking just to the Jews. And then it kind of points out, I don't know if I put this in here. No. Uh, then it kind of puts out that some of them who were from Cyrene, which is clear over here, and uh, Cyprus, which is this island. So these are Jewish people who had been scattered in one of the diasporas. They weren't from um, Jerusalem. Remember we said how when Philip went north, uh, he most likely, since he had a Greek name, most likely wasn't from Jerusalem. And so he wouldn't have known not to go talk to Samaritans because he didn't have that kind of built-in racism that you would have had if you were from Jerusalem. Where these guys are from Cyprus and Cyrene. Jerusalem's clear over here. So they don't have that kind of Judean um, resistance to Gentiles either. They've lived amongst Gentiles their entire lives. Probably their parents and grandparents did too. So they're fairly comfortable with Gentiles. So they come up to some of these new churches that are springing up here in Phoenicia, and they, it says they talk to the Hellenists. That just means the Gentiles. Um, it could have been Romans, could have been Greeks, could have been anybody from that area, could have been barbarians. Just, they're people who were part of the Hellenistic empire and not Jews. And it says that tons of them started getting saved. Uh, and they kind of established themselves right here in this town called Antioch. And this kind of becomes a big deal. Uh, and a big part of it happens here in, uh, in our passage. So they get a big enough church. It says that people, the tons of, of Hellenists or Gentiles are getting saved and joining the church up here, just like they did in Samaria. <laughs> it gets back to the apostles, and they decide they're going to send up um, kind of another delegation to make sure that it's, they've got good script, they've got good theology, that they've, they're orthodox. Only this time they send Barnabas. Um, who, as far as we know at this point, has no official position. He was one of the people who sold a huge chunk of land, gave it to the apostles. But um, other than that, we really haven't heard much of him. And so they send Barnabas up this time to, uh, uh, to validate. And Barnabas gets up there, and he loves what's going on. He encourages everybody. He tells them, this is awesome. You guys are doing great. And then he goes over here to this little spot. Uh, there was actually uh, like ferries almost that went back and forth. This is a tough mountain uh, trail, but it was only like a day or so to run over to Tarsus by boat. And so he goes over and picks up Paul. If you remember, Barnabas was the one that invited Paul to meet the apostles and said, this is a great guy, trust us. And, and, and he heard Paul preaching back then when the Jews wanted to kill him and he was being really effective. Um, uh, Barnabas saw this. So Barnabas sees something, uh, sees potential here. He knows Paul's a great teacher. He knows he really understood the scripture. He almost immediately um, started preaching Christ from the minute he got saved. Like he probably knew the Old Testament well enough that the second Jesus revealed himself to him, he looked back and kind of did one of those, oh, I see where all that was. And so he was preaching almost day one of getting saved. And Barnabas knows that. And Barnabas also knows 
Paul's one and only problem this, so this, this, to this point is he made Jews so mad in every town he went into that the Jews wanted to kill him. So they kept having to sneak him out of town so the Jews wouldn't kill him. And he also knows this is now mostly a Gentile church. This is a church full of non-Jewish people. Surely they won't want to kill him. This is Paul's opportunity. Let's, let's go get Paul. Surely he can preach here. So he goes over to Tarsus, gets Paul, brings him back, and Paul and Barnabas really start to, I guess you would say, pastor or teach and evangelize Antioch. And this becomes um, really the new center of the church. Anybody here know postmodernism? Anybody study postmodernism at all? What postmodernism is? Um, a little bit, yeah. Postmodernism is kind of fascinated with the D words, deconstruction. We deconstruct the paranarrative. That's a, that's a postmodern phrase, which means you don't trust any of the things that have been handed down to you from the past. So we, we no longer trust history. Like we, and so we, they call it revisionist history. That's a postmodern concept. We deconstruct um, all of these narratives we've been given from the past that tell us who we're supposed to be, and we no longer trust them anymore. We deconstruct the paranarrative. We, uh, it's, Denunciation is a big postmodern thing. We don't like allegiances, so we we denounce all of our current allegiances and we get uh, less attached to those. Decategorization, we don't like genres in art. We like our art to be collage and mix up genres. We like our movies to be a little bit dark but a little bit funny and have a little bit of romance and a little bit of killing all in the same movie. Like If you go back before postmodernism, you didn't have all those things. You had really specific genres. Now we just like to jumble it all up, so we decategorize everything. But the big one, um, and demoralization is a, is a postmodern concept that, not that we, not immorality necessarily, because there's always been an immorality that exists, but demoralization means there, are, there is no morality. We've, we like to pull the morality out of everything. Um, but the big one that I'm interested with tonight is what we call uh, decentralization. It's a, it's a big kind of postmodern concept where we no longer trust centralized authority. We like to localize everything and, and, uh, so a lot of the distrust for the big companies, big governments, big, you know, a lot of that is a postmodern reflection. And the church has responded to this in some, in some fairly cool ways um, because the church being grounded in the scripture and now kind of having this new influence that came in with postmodernism, which kind of started heavy in the 60s. Um, but the church has in wondering what they should do because we no longer trust centralized authority and we get that and but where do we go and what if we can't really trust the church to tell us what to do then 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 what how do we handle it and what a lot of most churches have done they've gone pre-modern so in their response to to this kind of postmodern push is they go back to the early church kind of like we're doing and saying okay then what did it look like originally and the church has found um, this concept called decentralization. And this is kind of a big one. And, it, and, it's, uh, and this has happened in the church in a big way. Small groups, those are a postmodern invention. Small groups didn't exist before the postmodern era because the church was, was power. Um, they, didn't, they didn't trust to take the central teaching of the church and just let it leave. And you're just trusting all these home group leaders are going to teach well and teach what your church teaches and and but the the movement toward small groups is a postmodern movement it's a decentralizing movement it's saying you know the that the the core and the teaching and the power doesn't have to stay right here in the church government it can go out and and spread and that was kind of a big move and it's a good move not all postmodernism is good most postmodernism is garbage um but 
I like decentralization. I think that's a, a pretty healthy move that postmodernism uh, embraced and that the church kind of embraced out of the postmodern movement. Um, but in this passage, if you look at what happens, um, kind of in this passage as a whole, at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, the church is exploding in one city. And you have, I mean, because in a matter of weeks, you have 8,000 people getting saved in Jerusalem to the point that Peter can't walk down the streets of Jerusalem without people just lining the streets. And it says they're pulling in people from surrounding towns into Jerusalem. And if you watch over the course of, <coughs> over the course of our story, and definitely tonight, with that persecution that's kind of spread the, the church up into Samaria, and then with the saving of Cornelius, and now we've moved up to Antioch. By the time we get to this story, the apostles aren't even the ones that are validating the move of the Spirit anymore. Now they're sending Barnabas. Barnabas goes up. Um, instead of grabbing Peter like we've done every other time, Barnabas goes over and gets Paul. Um, the church, it says that this is the first, it says that uh, the church was first called Christians at Antioch. Did you guys catch that line in our passage today? Christian is a Greek name. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Up until then, they would have been a messianic, they would have called them messianics, maybe? I don't know. They would have called them something messianic Jews. They would have chosen the Hebrew name. So the name for the whole movement is Greek now. They gave it a Greek name. They call them Christians, which is Christ is a Greek word, not a Hebrew word. And so the, the church actually takes on a Greek name and it keeps that name. From now on, they're called Christians. Which, so, so we watch the church literally move. And then by the end, and this is, you know, not much you can do, but by the end, the Jerusalem church gets hammered by a famine and they're now receiving uh, support from the Antioch church. It says that the Antioch church took an offering and sent down support to the struggling Jerusalem church. So we've just watched, like at the beginning of the story, the Jerusalem church was it. It was the place. And they were even kind of almost fighting the expansion out of that. And now we've really watched in one chapter the, the complete uh, shift of the power base. The complete and from, this, from the rest of the story on, eventually Peter comes up to Antioch. Eventually Peter joins the Antioch church, kind of leaves the Jerusalem church and joins the Antioch church. But for the rest of the book of Acts, it's going to be centered, the, the place that everybody's going to come in and out of. There's a point where Paul kind of loops from Antioch and around and comes back, and there's a point where he decides, I need to go to Jerusalem. And people actually argue with him about it. They're like, what are you going down there for? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, because Antioch's the place to be now. And here's why. This is the big thing. The thing that the postmoderns have gotten right, and this is, this is kind of huge, is that ultimately nothing has changed. Because this book has told us from the get-go that Jesus is the power center of the church. It is a cruciocentric movement. He is always at the center of it. So technically, you can just move the church... You can change leadership. You can do all kinds of things, and the church hasn't changed. It still has the exact same head it had all along. So nothing's actually been decentralized. It's just that we have uh, we've 
change locations and move players. Um, let me see what I'm missing here. Something unique happens in the book of Acts that I really want to kind of pull out. Through most, and because some of us still struggle with this model a little bit, um, most of the Old Testament follows a single character. So you have Abraham, and you follow Abraham for a while. And then you, you know, Vinci, Isaac, and, and Jacob, of course, and you get into Joseph, you settle in with Joseph for a while. And then you have, you know, Moses comes in, and he's the, the man of God. And then after Moses, you have the judges, and each judge kind of has their centralized thing, and they are the man or woman of God uh, for a while. And then after the judges, you have the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and everything kind of happens through them, and then they split and have all the other kings. And so the Old Testament kind of has the the, the man of God theme, you know, where, where really it's about, it's about a person. It's about the one person God is using at the time. And then we get into the book of Acts, and for the first time, there is no head player. We have 12 apostles. And it, it kind of talks about Peter for a while, but if we, I tend to focus on one person because I have trouble breaking out of that mold, but when Peter uh, healed the guy, it was Peter and John, and they were both tried. And there were several times when it just says the apostles went somewhere. And when Peter went up um, to validate um, the Samaritan, the move of the gospel into Samaria, it was, it was Peter and John again, I think. It might have been James that time. I can't remember. But uh, when Paul goes out, it's Paul and Barnabas. It's Paul and Silas. It's Paul and Timothy. Um, we don't see the concept of the one big head anymore in the New Testament. Or at least not in a human sense. Because we do see one head through the entire New Testament. And that's Jesus. It's always Jesus. He is... The boss. Jesus is the head. So we don't have the man of God anymore, capital T, like we did in the Old Testament. What we have is a team of people who are together trying to find the will of the boss, trying to find what Jesus wants, trying to find the will of the Father. And so in this, in this story, what looks like almost the death of one church and the birth of another, it almost looks like, you know, the loss of power in one place and the gaining of power in another, really nothing has happened. Jesus is still absolutely the head of the church. And this is kind of a big deal because, like right now, the church is on the decline in America. Our overall attendance and, and state people who claim to be Christian is going down in America. But if you look at the church global, it's exploding in Asia and it's exploding in Africa by unprecedented numbers. The church is actually growing right now globally um, compared to where it has been, which feels weird if you're in Europe or you're in America because the church is struggling here. Um, and I think it's the same thing. I don't think the church has changed a bit. Jesus is still in control and, and, he, and when it wanes in one place, it waxes in another and the church is always moving and rolling and growing. And the spirit is always pushing into new areas and expanding the kingdom. So how do we respond to this? Um, First, and I hope you guys realize this, that as we've been going through the book of Acts, we're kind of creating our ethos, if that makes sense, like what we want to be. Like there's a lot of theology in the book of Acts we're not talking about that we could if we really wanted to 
stay here for a couple of years. But we're, what we're trying to do is find our ethos, like find our what we're going to be about, how this book and this, the early church is going to shape us so that we can look at where Open Table Community Church is going to go and what it's going to be, like who we want to love and how we want to love them. And uh, ADD just got me. I got to move that stuff because they're going to need it. I just moved everything into this closet out of there and I did, just now realized I can't do that. I'll fix that. Here we go. See if I can edit that out of the recorded version. Uh, no, I won't. Um, and so tonight, as we're kind of shaping who we are, um, I guess I just want to share a little bit that uh, a huge part of what we're doing, uh, like our leadership right now, is trying to find ways to um, to not get caught up in power traps, uh, which is is tricky because your leadership and leadership sort of means power, and we recognize uh, we recognize that um, some of those traps are very real, and so we're setting things up as we're cause we're kind of building some of this structure as we go. And um, and some of it, you know, is is literally finding ways to see to it that I don't have really any power um, that I don't get to as we um, we kind of have a what we call a startup elder board, kind of a planting board um, that's kind of making some of the, some people who have great administrative experience in life and they're kind of helping us make sure we get things started well and, and done right and that we're set up well. And then we're going to try to have terms for our elders um, so that, you know, nobody gets in and makes decisions just to make sure that they can hold on to their position and keep power. So we're going to we're going to have terms so that the elders will rotate and people kind of step up and and serve and then they step back down. And and uh, and I will never get to choose the elders. Um, that's something we put in place so that I can't kind of stack the board in my favor and make sure I can do whatever I want. The elders will replace themselves and I won't get any say in that. And, and, uh, and the elders we have have great hearts and none of them even want the position right now. Like I had to basically twist their arms to say, would you please do this? Like you've got great experience in administration. And very first meeting, they all said, as soon as I can get off this board, I want to. <laughs> it's like, awesome. Um, <coughs> yeah, so... Uh, and they've got great hearts and the people that they'll try to replace themselves with, I'm sure they'll look for people with the same kind of hearts. Um, and also, you know, one of the things we had to do is that if I ever want to say something or do something and they all disagree with me, I cannot override them. Like I, and, and I don't want to. If, I, if God is speaking to three or four people and, uh, and they're all like, Chris, I think you're off base here. I think, you know, I want to be able to look across the table and know a couple things. Number one, that these people love me. I want to know that the people I'm sitting across from have my best interests at heart to where when I look at them and say, if these guys are calling me, then, then they, there's got to be something there because I know these people love me. They're not just being crappy and trying to be mean to me. They, they love me and they're trying to rein me in. So why? So I want, I want that protection first. And second, I don't think I am the man of God for Open Table Community Church. I think... That's why we have elders. I think God speaks to a lot of us and speaks to a board. And I don't want ultimate power because I want ultimate power. I'm a control freak. Of course I would love to have all the power. But that's scary. And because I am that way, 
We're setting up protections to make sure that it can't happen. Because the church has a head. The church absolutely has a leader. It has a boss. It has someone in charge. And that's Jesus. It's always Jesus. So we have to know. And and one of the things we're trying to do is to build uh, whatever protections, whatever structures in place we can to make sure this doesn't become you know, a, a community with little power struggles and everybody having an agenda and everybody trying to, to wrangle for the best, you know, argument, best position. We just want to worship and seek God together is ultimately what we're trying to do. And so I want you to know that's what we're trying to do. And I also want you to know if you ever feel like I'm getting a big head, you can kick me. Just come up and kick me in the shin or whatever, you know. Um, because I am not the boss. I'm absolutely not the boss. And I will never, I will let you down. I will fall. I will mess up. I'll say stupid things all the time. Um, but Jesus won't. Or he won't. And the, the problem is if you are looking for a leader who you can absolutely trust, who you can put on a pedestal, and who will never fall from that pedestal, that's Jesus. That's not me. And, and when you walk up to that pedestal and you bow down and worship him, I will be right next to you but I will never be on the pedestal. Everybody get that? Everybody cool with that? Okay. Um, the second thing um, we got to reflect on is that this is not the church. Like we're part of the church, but Open Table Community Church is not the church. Like the, the, that's why in, in our prayers of the people, we always pray for other churches. We will always pray that the other, that other churches prosper. When they do well, we do well. Like the church does well. When they are strong, we are stronger. Like, we need uh, the church to do well in America. Like, not just Open Table Community Church. We need all churches to do well. We need all churches to fight against the darkness. The ones who we agree with wholeheartedly and the ones who kind of get under our skin a little bit, we still need them to do well. We need to be praying for them all the time. We need to be praying that they will be a light with us against the darkness. So we're always going to pray for other churches because they are us. We are Crosswinds. We are New Life. We are Redemption Church. We are a dot. We are uh, the United Methodist Church. Like this, we are all the church. Whatever names we put on it, we're all part of that, and we need them to succeed. As we go to the table tonight, um, I want. Uh, In the book of First Corinthians, the very first passage, <laughs> the Corinthian church had fallen into power struggles. And the people were dividing over it. Some were saying, I'm from Paul. Some were saying, I'm from Peter. Others were saying, I'm from Apollos. They were kind of dividing themselves over which of the apostles, which of the head people they wanted to follow. And, oh yeah, sorry about that. And, um... The, uh, and Paul comes in and his answer to the whole thing, to this huge power struggle, he didn't come in and say, you know, no, that guy's the boss or that guy. Paul's answer was, did Paul die for you? Were you baptized in the name of Peter? Like, you have a head, was, his, was what he did with this big fight that was going on. He said, was Paul's body broken for you? Was Peter's blood poured out? For you, 
So as we go to the table, and every night we go to the table, that's why. Because our head was broken for us. Our boss paid the price for his position. He earned the top seat. He earned the power by going to the cross for you and for me.